This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. We have a very special guest today, Judge Lamar Sizemore. We have several podcasts on legal topics that contain case citations in similar detail. But today, we wanted to take a step back, get out of the weeds, and talk with a man who served on the Superior Court bench in Georgia with great distinction. We wanted to pick his brain and let him share his experiences with our podcast audience. When we first began this project, I told Tane, yeah, we need to talk about all of these law things, but I really want to try to get Judge Sizemore on as a guest I hope that he would be willing to share some of his wisdom and experience with all of us on the podcast. I was honored to be able to be asked, excuse me, to speak a few years ago to a Mercer University law class. And in preparation for that presentation, I realized there is a body of YouTube videos out there. And several of them were Judge Sizemore speaking to that same class on some of those same topics of professionalism, etc. I was completely blown away with some of the thoughts he had shared about his time on the bench, and I wish that I had seen those YouTube videos earlier in my own career. Wade told me about some of the things Judge Sizemore shared with the law students, and we've actually incorporated some of those thoughts and ideas into our new judge training sessions. I guess we should have asked his permission first, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, Tane. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Oops. Well, uh, so let's get right into our conversation with Judge Sizemore. He drove all the way to Athens just to participate in this podcast, and we're all very, very grateful for his willingness to do so. So Judge Sizemore, welcome, such as it is, to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you. It's a thrill to be here. Uh, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity. Frankly, when I got your email, being a, a sort of a techno dinosaur, I had to go look up podcasts to figure out what this was. <laughs> so it's a unique experience for me, and I'm flattered that you'd ask me to come. Well, Great. Tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your legal career, both before and after you you served as a Superior Court judge. When you served as a judge, you were in Macon, correct? That's right. And that was the three-county circuit? It was. It's the Macon Judicial Circuit consisting of Bibb County, Peach County, and Crawford County. And uh, But our office is in Macon. So what did you do? You went to Mercer Law School? I did. Graduated in 74 from Mercer. Uh, went to work out of law school with the firm that later became O'Neill, Brown, and Sizemore. It started out as a 15-person firm and later split into three firms. And I was with what was the litigation division of that bigger firm. And I had the privilege of working with Hank O'Neill and Manley Brown for well, Hank's nine years before his death, and then with Manley for 26 and a half years. So I was really blessed to have two good mentors, uh, among others, that during my career, but, but those two really influenced uh, my career. 
Yeah, those are two legal giants for sure, Judge. Absolutely. How did you become a Superior Court judge? Was it an appointment, election? It was an appointment. Um, my good friend and Sunday school classmate, Walker Johnson, Judge Johnson, died in 2000, uh, August, I believe, and I was appointed by Judge Barnes to take his place and I've sworn in on January the 2nd, I believe it was, 2001. And I've been Governor Barnes after, I guess that was early in his, I don't remember when did he take office, but that was fairly early in his tenure, wasn't it? I think it was. Um, and yeah, and I always appreciated the, the confidence that he, he showed by appointing me. I had two uh, elections after that, fortunately, unopposed. So you it know, was a total of 10 years. I, just as an aside, I've had both opposed elections and unopposed elections, and I prefer unopposed. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're a whole lot less expensive. Yes, too. sir. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a lot about what you did while on the bench. So you served from 02 until, you said 02, I think, for, until when? It was January of 01 through okay. December of 2010, so exactly 10 full years. Did you take senior status at that point? or No, uh, I really had missed the camaraderie of a law office, just the interaction with partners in a firm, <clears throat> and I missed mediation, which had been a big part of my law practice before I went on the bench. I could mediate as a senior judge, but I couldn't be part of a law firm um, that would have cases in superior court. So I chose to just retire completely. And that gave me the ability to be in a law firm, to you know, have that interaction with lawyers every day, and, uh, and also to have the opportunity maybe in the future to practice law with my son. And that's come into fruition in the interim. So I do have the opportunity to practice with Rick, and that's a real joy that's, in my life. That's congratulations! Great. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a neat thing. Yeah, it is a neat thing. <laughs> so, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something, and you don't take credit, you don't take praise very well, and I understand that, but that's probably why you get it. Um, when Tane and I were, pl were planning new judge orientation a few years ago with Superior Court judges, I came across one of those YouTube videos I was talking about it a minute ago. And you were talking with law students, and I really don't even know the context in which it came up because I wasn't listening to every word, sorry to say, I was scanning. And then all of a sudden, somebody asked, what would you tell judges in your experience? And I heard you in the most concise and direct manner I've ever heard and give a really clear explanation of some rules or suggestions you might give new judges. And I should have called you. I know I didn't. But anyway, I called uh, at the time Judge Tripp Self, who at the time, as we know, was a Superior Court judge. He's now a federal court judge. But at the time, he's a Superior Court judge. And I said, look, I've got this quote from Judge Sizemore. It really would be perfect. Do you know of any reason I shouldn't use this. I'm not trying to suggest that possibly you were crazy, but you know, we all have everywhere <laughs> to a while. <laughs> People who put stuff out there that you're not as sure that it's, it's solid. He said something to me that has impacted me and has been sort of a really impressive uh, compliment to you, Judge. He said that you had the finest reputation of any judge he had ever known and that it would be his ultimate aspiration to have a reputation like yours when he retires. 
And I, I'll be honest with you, it was such a great tribute to you. And I was like, okay, he's really awesome. It, it's really, and you don't necessarily have to say anything to that, but I wanted to make sure that our listeners heard it and that you heard it because we really appreciate the fact that for no reason whatsoever, you've driven from Macon today and quit putting outside in your yard. <laughs> now you're probably welcome uh, that well, that break. A sore this morning, yeah. But to come all the way up here just to talk to some new new judges or some other judges, and we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I tell you, I can't. I'm overwhelmed by what uh, what Tripp said. He is such a wonderful lawyer, judge. And person all the way around, just a wonderful person. I'm just glad to to know him, and, and I'm so proud of his career, his accomplishments. So, Tane, why don't you put on put on the record? Why don't you tell everybody the three rules that we use in NJO? Then we'll sort of go over them with the judge. Absolutely. Um, so, Judge Sizemore's uh, sort of concise rules for us as judges are: number one, remember that you were once a lawyer and what it was like to earn a living practicing law as a lawyer. Number two, when in doubt, choose mercy. And I'll tell you, Judge, I've used that one many times. And number three, just rule. With an exclamation. <laughs> yes, with, in all caps, bold, and in an exclamation point afterwards. So if you would, Judge, just tell us your thoughts about that and, and why those are important rules for us to follow. Yeah, the first rule about uh, remembering that first you were a lawyer, if I want to make it a little more concise. I mean, if a judge forgets what it's like to get up every day and go deal with a multitude of clients, uh, differing legal issues, with responsibilities in 20 or 30 different venues, uh, conflicts in scheduling, uh, payrolls that they have to deal with every month, personnel issues in the office. If a judge ever forgets that, uh, they are not likely then to accommodate lawyers. And they, in, in my view, run the risk, uh, and I would fear, that they would turn into tyrants. I mean, you, you got to be here. You have to stay all day with your clients. You and you can't get any work done if you're just sitting at the courthouse waiting for your time to have an appearance. So, I, you know, I, my admonition to new judges would be first, remember that you were a lawyer and, and be conscious of what it's like to be a lawyer and try to accommodate lawyers. I've always felt like the lawyers were the judges' constituency. I mean, I realize it's the entire public and their clients. But the lawyers are the ones who uh, you are there to try to help. I mean, you're there to help them resolve their clients' disputes. And uh, I always tried to find a way to accommodate them. For example, scheduling pleas every 15 or 20 minutes so they knew a specific time to be back with their client as opposed to having them all come and sit all day long until their case could be reached. And... Uh, Learned that from Walker Johnson, Judge Johnson. And what do you do when people abuse that? When you have lawyers who inevitably are always on a conflict, they never can be at your court. You're getting conflict letters, and if you ever check behind them, you find out maybe it's not 100% what it says in the letter. You know, I, I let it be known early on that I – sort of kept a list. There was a legal pad that sat to my right up there on the bench. 
And if somebody was late, for example, they might see me slide the pad over and, and write down a name. Uh, and I would get together with those lawyers um, after the second, third time and in my office and just have a heart-to-heart -heart talk about the importance of being prompt. Um, you're not uh, then wasting the time of everybody who's otherwise sitting and waiting on you. It sounds like you're not trying to embarrass them in the courtroom, but at the same time trying to explain how they're sort of putting you in a bad spot. Right. And, and that, I think, is really important, not to embarrass lawyers in front of their clients and the jury. And uh, I many times would call somebody up to the bench. I mean, I would give you one example. In... Um, uh, the examination of a witness in a criminal case, the defense lawyer asked a question. The state stood up and objected. Uh, I ruled with the state. He took his legal pad, walked over to the defense table, and dropped it uh, on the table in obvious disgust with the ruling. But it was like a clap of thunder. Pow! <laughs> <laughs> And it started sliding across the defense table, and the courtroom just went deadly silent. The jurors, everybody, their eyes on this legal pad as it slid across. Even the defendant rocked back in his chair as the pad slid past him on the table. And all I had to do was, you know, sort of point my finger to the lawyer, and to me. he'd come up to the bench, and I explained to him, and he said, yeah, Judge, I agree, I'm, I'm sorry. Never do it again. And it was out of character. I mean, we didn't, I wasn't trying to embarrass him, but it was pretty obvious that was not the way to conduct yourself in a courtroom. And, uh, and that was all it took to make the point. Just call him up, and we sort of nodded at one another, and he apologized, and we moved on. Do you feel like that probably everybody in the room looked at you and like, now what's he going to oh, do? Oh, yeah. They mm. were... They were all anxious to see if I was going to be Judge Judy or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the temptation is always there for that. Yeah, there, well, there is. And we have to fight it. That's the bane of my existence is mm -hmm. people asking my wife, well, is Lamar like Judge Judy? Is he going you know, <laughs> to carry on like that? She well, was, you don't know me very well if you, if you think that. Um, but what you want to do is to be a lawyer's judge. That's ultimately, You want to be the judge that you always wanted to appear in front of when you were a lawyer. Isn't that the truth? Well, Judge, um, it, it strikes me that, that you enjoyed practicing law as a lawyer before you became a judge and that you still enjoy it uh, since your oh, time yeah. on the bench as well. And Wade and I are kind of in that same same boat. I, I always loved being a lawyer, and I have a great respect for our colleagues who are lawyers because, you know, that's a it's not an easy way to make a living. <laughs> no. In fact, Manley and I used to look at each other at the end of the day and say, God, there's got to be an easier way to make a living than this. <laughs> and I'm not yes, trying to sound like your dad's grandpa, but, but there are things that some lawyers do now that I would not have dreamed of doing mm -hmm. when I was a, a judge. Okay. I mean, excuse me, when yeah, I was a lawyer. lawyer. Some of my judges, I don't know what they would have done. Incarcerated me would have been the least on that list. I mean, there would have been not only embarrassment, but but real issues. And I just, you know, none of us as as judges, and at least in this era, we don't want to be some of the tyrants that we practiced mm -hmm. in front of. Amen. But when we're not, we get feel like we get taken advantage of, and and you sort of constantly feel like you're going forward and back, trying to find that balance between being 
firm yeah. and remembering what it was like to practice law. I took that legal pad uh, where I would write down a name, and I kind of let it be known, and the bailiffs, you know, were terrific about spreading the word among lawyers. Uh, yeah, I was kind of keeping score on people. And if it became a problem, I mean, I wasn't going to call everybody down every time, but if it became a problem, uh, I'd probably meet with them, and mm -hmm. we'd talk about it some. And so the word kind of spread. I remember having one lawyer who was invariably late. And, you know, uh, this is when I'm scheduling it specifically at a an hour and a minute for you and your client mm -hmm. to accommodate you. Mm -hmm. Late three times in a row, brought her in the office, we talked about it, assured me no problems. The next time she had a plea or a hearing, she came late, uh, very apologetic, and I said, that's all right, let's move on, let's, let's tend to business. But then I called her up and I don't, I don't know that this is the right thing to do, and I don't, I'm not recommending it to anybody, but the way I handled that was I said, now, before you leave the courtroom, you have got to go to your client and the prosecuting attorney and the court reporter and the bailiff and the security officer, and you've got to apologize to each of them for keeping them waiting 15 minutes before you got here. Because collectively, I mean, we're looking at about two hours worth of wasted time because you didn't get here. We were able to herd eight cats, if you will, <laughs> yeah. together to be here on time. And we've done that over and over. And you just haven't been able to, never had a problem after that. But she was stunned that I would suggest she needed to go apologize to everybody. <laughs> but that, for, on that occasion, it made the point so let's let's you know i guess we could talk about that subject alone for a couple of hours let's talk about your second rule because i do happen to have heard a little bit more of your podcast and i want to make a couple things clear that is when in doubt choose mercy now i know you handled death penalty cases oh, yeah. i know you handled serious felony cases you are not saying well, are you saying that everybody should get probation? No, no. Uh, it, there needs to be emphasis on the first part of that rule, and that is when in doubt. I mean, I've tr tried uh, lots of uh, major felony cases where, uh, you know, my feeling was I needed to just stack time as much as I could because this person with the background of other violent crimes and the nature of this crime was so dangerous that you really did not want the public subjected uh, to contact with this person. So I have no reservation about a, a stiff sentence where it uh, is appropriate. But, you know, th the guy who uh, for a few minutes kind of goes crazy driving in the car and, um, you know, a little road rage, and uh, but out of character, you know, so... If first time around, uh, he's eligible for first offender treatment, then certainly I, I gave first offender treatment on a number of occasions if they were eligible. But I always cautioned them that if they violated this probation, they'd be back in front of me because the other judges knew that I wanted to hear those cases myself because this defendant has made a promise to me, and I've placed my trust in that defendant. And if it's violated and they come in front of me, um, 
they need to bring their toothbrush with them was the expression <laughs> I would use because, you know, I would activate the balance of that sentence. And uh, so uh, that's... Uh, but you do see a lot of people who, frankly, are just broken. I yeah, mean, they're just broken right. human beings and they don't have anything. And that driver's license or that, yeah. you know, freedom to keep that job that they finally got, da, 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 you know, it goes on and on and on. It can be life changing. Yeah. But it also, as a judge, you get lied to on the regular. Everybody's lying. Yeah. Sometimes you go home and your kids are like, Daddy, I'm not in court. I'm not lying. You know, <laughs> you just get so used to everybody lying to you that you don't want to get fooled, I guess is the right word. Well, this rule has really served me well um, since Wade and I first started talking about it because there are those cases sometimes where you hear both sides and you think, I'm just not sure. And Wade has accused me of being frequently wrong but never in doubt. But the truth (laughs) is that I, uh, you know, there are every once in a while those cases where your gut doesn't say one thing or the other strongly or your intuition or or your your whatever measure you use to determine the appropriate sentence. And those are the cases where I've decided, uh, you know, mercy's mercy's the, the, the response to that, the appropriate response to that. There'll be another day if uh, if they don't live up to the promises they make you. It's just, um, you know, I think I think it's just a good way to treat people, and I think you'd want to be given that same courtesy, uh, trust, uh, if you if the roles were reversed. And I always made it a point to wish them good luck when they left. I'm not, I was never comfortable berating or demeaning um, or even cursing um, at defendants when I sentenced them. It just, I mean, everybody has their own style. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. I'm going to go ahead and it's throw out there, cursing's style. probably wrong. I think I'm in agreement with you on that. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've, I've, I've seen it, yet. but I don't condone it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. 100%. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I'm just not comfortable with it. It's not my style that I had. Wasn't real sure what judges meant early on in my career when they told me, well, you'll develop your style. Well, I guess that's a matter of personality and experience and, you know, who mentors you and things like that. But it's not my style to demean. I always want to encourage them that things can be better if they'll just take a different uh, route. And I always would explain to them why I was imposing conditions like you know, get a GED and anger management or family therapies or things that would uh, give him a better chance, him or her, uh, when they're released. So I guess that's part of uh, the airing on the side of mercy. You know, I always felt like if I ever saw somebody at Walmart, I wanted to feel good about, I know, I don't, I may not remember what I said to that person, yeah. but I wanted to know I've never said anything I'm not willing to be accountable for or right. back. Right, right. Well, I always tell folks at the end of every plea, at least. Uh, now, the main thing is once you're on probation with me, is we just don't need to see each other in the courtroom anymore. Right. And as long as we don't, that means that life's going great for you. And uh, and then I wish them good luck like you did and send them on good. their way. And then if they come back on a revocation, I say, remember when you were here on your plea and I said we didn't need to see each other again? Right. Well, here we are. And you know, you <laughs> probably you. you probably developed this too. But you develop tricks because you see so many people and you can't, you know, good and well, you think 
that, that you said X or you said Y when they were here last time. Oh, yeah. So I found it that if I always said certain things in a certain order, I would remember, remember, sir, last time you were here when I told you blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can't swear that I told you, but I'm pretty sure I told you. Did you do the same thing, try to do things in the same order? Particularly on first offender sentences, I would say the same thing to them about if you come back, you know, I'm right. placing my trust in you and I'm, I'm believing you when you say you're going to do this and so. And, uh, you know, and so then when they did come back, and occasionally they did, I'd say, now you remember when I told you thus and so on this date, and they nod their head, they know. They 100% know. Cause a this lot is, of times they yeah. smile because yeah, they're right. like, yeah, yeah. I'm you waiting caught, for you, this. You got me. I remember you said that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Judge, the, the thing that we have spent probably the most time on, and it sounds so ludicrous in the abstract, but now serving as a judge and trying to train some judges is your last rule. Mm-hmm. Two words, just rule. And at first, I wasn't 100% sure I got your meaning. And as time went on, I started realizing your meaning. And as we tried to articulate to some of these new judges, I realized the meaning. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. I'll tell you the origin of my thought on that was my uh, good friend and like my uncle, Bob Hicks, uh, who was my dad's law partner who went to Mercer at the same time dad did. And American College of Trial Lawyers, tremendous lawyer, but a terrific person and um, my dad died at age 54, and but I've maintained this relationship with, with uncle, <laughs> I, I think of him as Bob. And so I went to Bob when I was thinking about doing uh, this, going from law practice to, to being a judge. And he said, uh, promise me one thing. And I said, what is that? That you will rule. And I thought, well, of course I will. I mean, what kind of question is that he said no i mean that you will um, take the responsibility to do the study to make the decision not to drag it out but to promptly and thoroughly uh, rule on a case and uh, he said the raison d'etre the the very reason for existing as a judge is to rule and if you can't rule you ought to get out of the way and let somebody else sit down who will rule, because nobody can go anywhere until there's a ruling. That case just sits. Those parties just sit. And uh, the old justice delayed is justice denied that uh, William Gladstone is, uh, gets the attribution for is true. Uh, don't be paralyzed uh, by the weight or don't be crushed by the weight of the decision. And you have to deal with some hard ones. I mean, you know, child custody, deciding which parent's going to take the children home, the the uh, the people you're about to sentence to the penitentiary, just think about the ripple effect that has on families, employers, friends. Um, you know, if you don't say a, a a prayer every now and then before you go in and sentence somebody, you're an unusual person, because exactly. I, I certainly did. Um, well, you know, I think that some of our new judges, and, and Judge Kell may agree with this, is that they think that somebody else probably knows the answer. In other words, that they've got a question 
that they think has a singular answer if they would just ask the right person. And what they finally realize is, no, no, a lot of these things that we decide have layers upon layers and credibility and witnesses and law, and it depends on this and it depends on that. And you can't even tell the story adequately to get any help. Nobody else out there is any smarter than you. Just rule. Try your best and (laughs) rule. Right. Set yourself a goal. I always uh, kept uh, with the uh, thanks to a wonderfully organized secretary, what I called a motion log. And every motion that was assigned to me was entered on this log. And I, she'd put on there the date it was filed, the date the briefs were due, the date of the hearing. And then I'd have a 30-day aspirational goal, and that date would be on there. And, and the report sat on my desk. And so every day I had to look at that. So people who say judges don't really have anything to do, I mean, (laughs) if you do this conscientiously and do it the way it ought to be done, you'll never catch up. And it's frustrating because you've always got stuff to do, motions to be decided. You also bring up a really important point that Wade and I have talked about a million times because Wade has an incredible assistant and I have an incredible assistant. And what we do is so much a team effort. It's all on you. The decision-making ultimately is, is all yours. But uh, I think people who don't work in the environment we work in would be surprised how much goes on behind the scenes that is completely team-oriented. And you, you have to rely on good people to help you do your job. And your courtroom might be dark, but that doesn't mean that you don't have stacks and stacks on your desk to get done. That's right. Yeah, the courtroom stuff didn't worry me near doesn't worry me nearly as much as what's stacked on my desk or what voice messages are stacked up on my phone. <laughs> Hold on. This is your favorite producer slash editor Steven here. Man, these guys are long-winded. But this interview is so good, we're gonna break it up into two equally enthralling sessions. So be sure to check out part two of our interview with Judge Lamar Sizemore. Court has adjourned. I've always wanted to say that. Okay, I'm going to run the outro now. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild.
Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.